Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording late on Tuesday night because we had some crazy games. Of course, the Celtics game against the Bucks was crazy. The Bruins-Stars game was crazy as well. We'll get into both those games in just a second here. And also, we had a chance to chat with Jason Tatum's personal coach, Drew Hanlon, the CEO of Pure Sweat Basketball. That was a ton of fun. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. We get into a lot of the stuff that him and Tatum worked on, some of the personality stuff. So you're going to really enjoy that and he coaches other guys too Joel Embiid, Zach Levine, Bradley Beal, Tyrese Halliburton so some really good stories from Drew Hanlon so I hope you guys really enjoy that we'll get into that in a little bit some interesting things too on the relationship between Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown which I think it was very entertaining talking to Drew he's really good but before we get into that conversation with Drew Hanlon I want to get into the Wild Seas game first, right? Because that one ended first. They lose in overtime to the Bucks, 131 to 125. Really one of the games of the year in the NBA, at least from a Celtics perspective. That thing was incredibly entertaining. So the Celtics starting lineup in this game was Derek White, Blake Griffin, Mike Muscala, Sam Hauser, and Grant Williams. I don't think we'll ever see this starting lineup again for the Celtics. Not because they played poorly. It's just a very rare combination that we would see, right? No Tatum, he was dealing with an illness. No Jalen Brown, of course, the facial fracture. No Marcus Smart and no Al Horford, okay? And you barely had Rob Williams in this game. He played just 13 minutes, so he probably wouldn't have even played if you weren't so shorthanded because obviously he's nursing an injury as well. So I come out of this game, if you peel it back, you feel really good about the effort from the Celtics here, right? This is a team that you consider to be your biggest threat in the Eastern Conference, and they barely beat you. They needed Holiday to hit that crazy three and go for 40 points to beat you in this game in overtime when they had their big three. I know Middleton's on a minute's limit, but they had their guys. You didn't have your best two players. You didn't have the defensive player of the year. You didn't have Al Horford, right? 
but some slight frustration before I get into mostly the positive aspects of this game. So Holiday hits that shot late, and it was a bomb, as we alluded to, with 25 seconds left. It makes it 127 to 125 bucks, as we mentioned. Okay, at that point of the game, you're not getting good shots late, right? So you jumped out to the 123-118 lead in overtime. And when the Bucks took Ingles out, you stopped getting good shots, right? So Holiday at one point picks Derek White and goes the other way to make it 123 to 122. Before that, Muscala took a bomb that was completely unnecessary. So Holiday was just really disruptive. So getting back to that point where it's 127 to 125, so 25 seconds left in the game, okay? I'm usually okay with not calling a timeout there because you don't want the defense to set up. But here's the problem. When you're not getting good shots and you're without your closers, right, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, I need to set something up there, especially the trend of what was going on late in this game. So I much rather Joe Mazzula call a timeout there. And when the play's going nowhere, you need to call the timeout, right? So, okay, even if initially you want to give them an opportunity to try to get an easy shot, when they're going nowhere whatsoever, you got to take a timeout there. And Missoula admitted after the game that he wished he had taken a timeout. So it's just, I'm not the only one questioning that. The coach himself said he should have taken a timeout. I don't know why he didn't. And just on Grant there, I don't know what he's doing. He's trying to like shake Giannis off the dribble. Now, in fairness, he was throwing a flaming bag, right? Like he didn't have a lot of time left on the game clock or the shot clock for that matter. But I don't know what he was doing there. Anyway, so now... One thing I just, I don't understand this about overtime as well. So you were getting really good shots with Ingles on the floor, right? So they were putting him in all the action and getting him switched. So White drives by him to begin overtime, makes it 118-116 once he gets the switch on Ingles. Then he gets a switch on Ingles again to Derek White. And Ingles is like going under. He almost like expects the switch. He hits a three to make it 121-116. So Budenholzer takes Ingles out of the game. But Grayson Allen is now in the game. So I don't know why they weren't doing the same thing with Grayson Allen because he's not a great defender either. Now, you have Drew Holiday. I just wanted to get him the fuck out of the play, right? That guy's disrupting everything, and you're not doing anything with Grayson Allen's man, which I wish the Celtics did more of at the end of overtime like they were doing at the beginning with Joe Ingles. So look, you can't complain too much about this game. These guys were going on fumes, and it was a gutsy effort from the Celtics. So that was impressive, especially considering... It was in Milwaukee's building. So let me get into some of the stuff I feel really good about in this game. First of all, if you're playing the Bucs in the playoffs again, Mike Budenholzer is still the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. Okay, this guy would have been fired two years ago if it wasn't for Kevin Durant's foot being on the three-point line, right? It's not like he's the reason they won a championship, right? This guy is completely clueless. How is your strategy at the end of the game, when the Celtics are inbounding with 7.1 seconds left in the fourth quarter, they're down three points. How do you not foul there? Okay, there's no way that Hauser should be able to dribble into that shot. Now, it's an absurd shot by Hauser, right? It's a complete fucking bomb. But what are you doing there? How is your philosophy? Yeah, we don't foul late. It wouldn't make sense, I guess, that that's your philosophy. I disagree with the philosophy, but how are you not pliable with that, right? I mean, there's 7.1 seconds left. You should be following your up three points. I mean, that is a clueless coach right there. And how about right away to begin the game? He gave away his challenge. Less than three minutes into the game, he challenged to play on Giannis on a charge. It's three minutes into the game, right? I don't know who the hell does that. So Budenholzer in a playoff series. I'm cool with that. 
We saw two examples tonight. This guy cannot run his nose. You should not be challenging that early. And you certainly should be following late in the game on Sam Hauser. Give Hauser all the credit in the world. That was a bomb. But give the assist to Mike Budenholzer because that was idiotic not to follow there. So I feel good about a potential playoff series with that guy on the other side. Okay. And the C's continue to do a good job on Giannis, right? Now, you're going to look up and you're going to say, what are you talking about, Brian? He had 36 points in this game. But the C's make him earn everything, right? First off, he missed eight free throws. And on the season, he's at 64.8% entering this game. He was at 72.2% last year. So that certainly is still a liability for Giannis. And you look at Giannis in this game. He was just 8 of 14 in the restricted area, 57.1%. So he wasn't finishing around the basket at a high level. On the season, in the restricted area, he's at 74%. You kept him at 57.1% tonight. So you made life incredibly tough on Giannis where he's at his best at the rim, right? Grant, of course, we know gives him issues. Right away, stones him early on in the first quarter where he throws up a garbage like reverse layup he's trying to hit because of Grant's body getting in the way. He also cut him off to Grant late in the game where Grant cut him off, so he immediately had to spin into a fadeaway, which Giannis is not going to hit that type of shot. So Grant continues to be a good defender on Giannis. Blake took a charge in him early, as we alluded to. <laughs> Later on, you'd see Budenholzer challenging that. Even Muscala jumped with him when it was 113-111, and he forced a travel from Giannis. Remember when Giannis was kind of like looking at his knee? Turned out he was miraculously fine. But nonetheless, like these guys did a really good job challenging Giannis at the basket. So you look at Giannis in total, he turned the ball over eight times in this game. And the C's forced a lot of those, right? They show him late help, they cut him off, and they force him to take difficult shots. They force charges. So the Celtics do a really good job making Giannis turn the basketball over. And in the game in totality, he's 12 of 26 from the floor. That's 46.2%. So now if you look at the last nine games that Giannis has played against the Celtics, going back to that playoff series, of course, He's 111 of 245, that's 45.3%. 47 turnovers, that's 5.2 per game. So that 5.2 number, Trey Young is number one in the league this year at 4.2 turnovers per game. Giannis is at 4.0, which is the second most in the NBA. He's at 5.2 when he plays the Celtics. So he averages one more turnover per game than anybody else in the league when he plays the Celtics. They force him into those turnovers, right? And then you look at just that field goal percentage in general. I mentioned last nine games against the Celtics, he's at 45.3%. And if you look at him on the season, he's at 50, 54.2%. So that's a large drop off as well. So you give Giannis a lot of issues. The other element is you didn't even have, have Al Horford in this game. He's one of your two best defenders on Giannis, right? It's him and Grant Williams. So I really like the way that they defended Giannis in this game because it continues to be a trend where the Celtics make life awfully di difficult on Giannis. He is not an efficient player when he plays the Celtics. You also look at another thing is Middleton in this game. He had that one stretch really to begin the fourth quarter, and we know he's on a minutes limit, as I alluded to, but he doesn't look right to me still. And look, Grant and Brogdon on the other side of the floor, they went at Middleton on back-to-back -back possessions, and they both scored. Another thing in this game, Brogdon just completely ripped Middleton when Middleton was trying to take him one-on-one. -on -one. So now on the season, he's at 21.2 minutes per game, 13.4 points per game, 42% from the field, 29.1% from deep. And this is something where, of course, we know he's a really good three-point shooter at his career. Last year, he dipped from 41.4% to 37.3%. And tonight, he's one of four from three-point territory. He had a bad brick with Pritchard on him where he couldn't go by Pritchard. He just settled for a contested jump shot because he didn't have the ability to go by Pritchard. 
Then he missed a wide open corner three. So we'll see if he gets his three back, but right now it's not there. And he just right now, and we'll see if maybe a couple months from now, he looks like the Chris Middleton that was really good a couple of years ago against the Celtics and when they won the NBA championship against Phoenix. But right now he doesn't look right. Now, Holiday does scare me. That guy is a pest. But remember, Tatum handled him on Christmas when Drew Holiday covered him one-on-one. Tatum went three for four with him as the primary defender. He bothered Tatum in the past, but not recently. Tatum's done a much better job with his ball handling and a much better job finishing over small defenders. We saw in the past, small defenders used to give Tatum issues like the Kyle Lowry's of the world where they can just get underneath Tatum, but his ball handling has improved so much. That type of defender doesn't usually bother Jason Tatum anymore. All right, that brings me to Tatum, who of course... You don't have him in this game tonight. This is the guy that puts you over the top. This is the guy that closes the game. And if you look at Tatum, the last three games he's played against Milwaukee, going back to Christmas Day in game six and game seven. Game seven, of course, he's, or I should say game six, he saved the season when he went for 46 points in Giannis's house. The most important game so far of Jason Tatum's NBA career where the season was on the line and that team didn't have Middleton. Very important game for Tatum and sort of his development in the league. So last three games, as we mentioned, 36.7 points per game. He's 38 of 68 from the field. That's 55.9%. 15 of 31 from deep. That's 48.4%. And he's a plus 54. You didn't have that guy tonight. And so here's the thing about Tatum. He sort of figured out the Bucks system. So the Bucks on the season, and this is something that's been a trend throughout the Mike Budenholzer era, 26.5 above the break threes they give up per game. The eighth most in the NBA. They will concede that shot. They give up 19.6 attempts from floater range, the fifth most in the NBA, 14.1 mid-range jump shots a game, the second most. So what they want to take away is the restricted area and corner threes, and they do a good job of it, right? But here's the thing about Tatum. If you look at him recently in those areas against the Bucks, 7 of 13 from floater range during the stretch, 53.8%, 5 of 11 from mid-range, 45.6%, and 15 for 29 on above the break threes, which is 51.7%. All that against the Bucs, the shots that they concede, right? So those are the shots that he's going to be able to get against the Bucs, and they didn't really adjust in the postseason even when he was hitting those shots, right? And you could say, well, Brian, on the season, Tatum's just over 38% from floater range at about 41% from mid-range and 34% on above the break threes. But even if, you look at the Bucs, right? You say, okay, this is a really elite team, but here's the thing. They made this mistake of treating Tatum like everybody else last year and on Christmas Day. This is their system. Defensively, they drop Brooke Lopez. Heck, in this game tonight, they're dropping Joe Ingles when they should just be switching, right? So what we've seen with Tatum over the stretch when he plays the Bucs, he's walking into these shots. And unless something changes with the Bucs in terms of what they're doing schematically, specifically against Jason Tatum, those shots are going to be there for Tatum in any game he plays against the Bucs. So unfortunately, we were robbed of seeing this happen for a fourth straight time because Tatum did not play tonight because he was dealing with an illness. But Tatum has sort of figured out how to get to easy shots for him against this Bucks defense. All right. Next thing I feel really good about is Derek White. OK, now I understand Holiday made the great steal on him late in this game. But this is third straight 20 and 10 game, 20 points and 10 assists. He goes for 27 and 12 in this game. And I alluded to this the other day, but smart going out may be good in the long run for this team because this is the best stretch of Derek White's career. And that's not even slightly hyperbolic. Last nine games before tonight, of course, he had the 27 and 12. So the nine games before this, 20.3 per game, 50.4% from the floor, 
46.8% from three, and he was a plus 53 during that stretch. And just going through some of the stuff tonight, early in this game, he drives, he finds Muscala, open three, 17-10, because he draws an extra defender. 6.37 left in the first quarter. Finds Muscala coming off a down screen. Very patient, gets to the right, throws it back to Muscala. Then he comes off a screen and he just flies by it, right? He's very good when he gets a defender switched on it because he doesn't slow down. He actually speeds up similar to what Malcolm Brogdon does. All right, later on in the game, he had a great cut where he gets to the basket easy, makes it 49-46, finds Griffin for a wide open three. He hits a wide open three. And then he hits another three when it's Joe Ingles on him. And again, Joe Ingles is... Going underneath the screen, he just walks into a wide open three. Then later on, he got a switch on angles where he gets to the line. And this is like sort of predatorial stuff where you see it with like the great players in the league, right? Like the Jason Tatums, the Kawhi Leonard's, the LeBron James, like they're looking for the mismatch. We see this in the playoffs all the time. We saw Derek White doing that tonight. Found Hauser on a ridiculous one-handed pass when Hauser cut to the basket. So just all in all, uh, oh, another big play ad where... He rejects the screen, right, where he throws, actually drew Holiday off. He rejects the screen. He goes right. So Holiday's late getting to him, and he just hits an easy floater over him. Also creates a really nice transition opportunity where he kind of lulled Carter to sleep, where it's just like he was going slow up the court. Then he accelerated, got to the basket, made it 99-99. And then next possession, he crossed Carter up, hit a floater. And on the season now, if you look at his numbers, He's 51 of 106 from floater range, which is 48.1%. That's a weapon that he certainly has as well. So just all in all, I thought he played a really good game. I know he had the turnover late in this game, but I was really impressed with the way that White played in this game. So he was tremendous. And that's another thing to feel good about going forward for this team that White, I mean, this opportunity, he's really taken advantage of it, right? How often have we said during the stretch, oh, they could really use Marcus Smart? Like never, because Derek White has been exceptional. Okay, another thing that you feel good about, right? Because this could be a potential playoff series is Brogdon. So last year in the playoffs, you needed another guy that could just get buckets on occasion, right? And how about tonight when Malcolm Brogdon had a big role in the offense? He was tremendous. He had 26 points. He got to the line nine times, which is important because really the only other guy on this team that gets to the free throw line frequently is Jason Tatum. The Celtics, by the way, tonight, Malcolm Brogdon in the first half, he hit like all but one of their free throw attempts, right? And you look at it, the Celtics with him on the court are taking about three more free throws per 100 possessions. So that's a big difference. He took nine of their 20 free throws in this game tonight. And just a couple of plays that stuck out from Brogdon. So he drives, he finds Rob for an easy opportunity to make it 34-27. And then at the end of the first quarter, he goes at Ingles and he got Ingles on the switch. And again, just like Derek White, he accelerates when he gets the switch. He just flies by and makes it 35-27. I mentioned earlier, he went right at Middleton. He got to the free throw line. And then the defensive play he made, he just ripped it from Middleton. And then when the Bucks made an 8-0 run in the third quarter, he ended that with just a hard drive to the basket. A couple of times he went right at Grayson Allen, which is what you want him to do, right? <laughs> when he has a smaller defender on him, just go through him. That's part of the reason that you got this guy here. Had a nice hard cut on an inbound too where Derek White found him. And then he hit a three at the top of the key where he got a screen from Rob New immediately. Okay, I'm going to be open because it's Rob Williams. He's going to drive the defender with him. Pulls the trigger on a three. Broke down Joe Ingles at the end of the shot clock at one point where he had the ball in the corner. Breaks him down. Gets into the lane. Dumps it off to Rob. Rob gets an easy, easy dunk. So Brogdon all in all was really good. Late in this game, of course, in overtime, he hit that runner 
on Carter, and then he gave the Celtics a lead at 125-124, got to the line when he drove on Carter as well. So late in this game, too, he made some really, really good plays. So I really like the way that Brogdon played tonight, and it makes me think about heading into the postseason, that third element, that third guy that can break you down off the dribble and score. Malcolm Brogdon has proven it again over this stretch. And I thought Mike Muscala was good again, of course. Now, he had a really good start where he had 10 points in, what, the first five minutes. Hit two threes in the first quarter, one off a down screen, and another one came off movement as well. And nice little push shot, too, where he got a pass from Brogdon. He had a dunk on a nice cut where, remember, he got a technical for that because he was, like, screaming, which I thought that was bullshit by the officials. Made a nice three-in semi-transition and nice pass to Sam Hauser on a cut to make it 81-74. The one thing I'll say is he looked gassed at the end of the game, and it's understandable. He played 43 minutes and 46 seconds. Season high prior to this was 24 minutes. Last year, his season high was 25 minutes. Year before that, his season high was 27 minutes. He played north of 43 minutes tonight. The last time he even played 30 minutes a game was January 15th of 2020. Okay, think about how long that is since this guy's played 30 minutes. He played 43 minutes and 46 seconds tonight. So maybe expected that he would sort of lose it late where, remember, he just at one point airballed the three, which that's a clear indication that his legs were gone. Another time he just bombed one up for no reason whatsoever. So I thought he just quite frankly looked tired at the end of the game, which is completely understandable considering the guy doesn't play more than 20 minutes this season, really. And he's playing 43 minutes and 46 seconds because of the injuries. So to recap, things I feel good about in this game, the effort without the four starters, very impressive, no quit in this team. Budenholzer sucks, not worried about Joe Mazzula being outcoached by him. Now, there's other guys I would worry about. The Eric Spolsters of the world. I certainly wouldn't worry about Glenn Rivers, but Eric Spolster I'd worry about. But I'm definitely not worried about Mike Budenholzer. That guy blows, and he proved it again tonight. Okay, also, you made life a bitch for Giannis, even without Al Horford. White having the best stretch that he's had. This looks real. And Brogdon gives you another element when you get into the postseason, a third guy that can get you buckets. So all in all, I feel good about this situation for the Celtics. Like, I was significantly more scared of the Bucks last year than I am right now. And this is without Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown playing in this game. All right. On the Bees, of course, they went in overtime over the Stars. So they had lost four or five going into this one, one of them in overtime to Florida. But nonetheless, you needed to win, right? Because you, of course, lost to Ovechkin and company on Saturday afternoon. This was gutsy tonight. In overtime, Pavel Zaka just flies up the ice, leaves it for David Pasternak, who gives it to McAvoy, and then McAvoy finds Pasta for the goal. But that was all set up by Pavel Zaka, just tremendous, where he just completely flew up the ice. And remember, he had tied up the game, too, where Carlo found him, and he just ripped one top shelf. And this was after, on the power play opportunity early in this game, he hit the post from that bumper position. So He's been playing really, really well since he got that contract extension. If you look at it, 12 games since the extension, he's got a point. He's a point per game guy since then. 12 points in 12 games. Third on the Bees during that stretch behind only David Pasternak and David Krejci. Seven goals and five assists during that stretch, right? And this is important, right? Because you extend this guy. He's going to be part of the core. This trade continues to look really good for Eric Hollis. So another nice move by Don Sweeney. But you give a guy a contract, you expect him to perform the way he has been performing. Well, Zaka has been significantly better than that. And he fits in perfectly on the check line with Pasternak and David Krejci. All right. I thought the effort in the first period after we mentioned losing four and five was tremendous, right? You outshot Dallas 15 to six. 
The Corsi rating was in favor of you as well. The high danger chances, four for the Bees compared to zero for the Dallas Stars. And during this stretch where the Bruins were struggling for those five games, they were at 4.3 expected goals for and 17.5 expected goals against, right? The high danger chances favored the opponents as well. And if you had looked at those previous 47 games where the Bruins are on a historic pace, they were at 157.4 expected goals for 123.7 goals against. So way in their favor, the high danger chances, 651 to 518. And the Bruins had been playing at a relatively poor level for what we saw most of the season. So I thought that was really important for them to get off to that early start. In totality this game, they outshot the Stars 37 to 31. And they had nine high danger chances compared to four for Dallas. I thought, quite frankly, Dallas's first goal was lucky too. Miller had that stretch pass to Pavelski and then he finds Robertson where it goes over Robertson's stick. So right away it goes to Hintz where essentially you're not expecting that if you're Olmark. So that's how you sort of get beat five hole on that particular play is actually the misplay by Robertson actually helped them, right? And then the second goal, I thought Olmark should have had that. Robertson to Pavelski, back to Robertson. Tough to complain because Olmark's been really good all season, and he hadn't played in, what, 13 days or so? I guess you look at the All-Star game, but he got beat 5 Well, That's a save that he has to make. But like I said, tough to complain about Olmark. He leaves the league in save percentage and goals against. So I thought all in all, he, and he was really good in overtime, right? One other note, the first goal for the Bruins, I thought this is important, where Taylor Hall was flying through the neutral zone, leaves it for Krejci. Krejci has a tremendous feed to Lindholm, and Lindholm actually draws two behind the net, gets it back to Taylor Hall, who buries it to give the Bees at that point a one nothing lead. But this team is different when Taylor Hall is playing at a high level. We talked to Sean McDonough about this the other day, that he had sort of been in a funk, and that was a really big play, I thought, not only for the Bruins, but for Taylor Hall individually tonight the penalty kill great again they killed a five on three what in the third period then they killed a four on three in overtime where during that stretch Olmark had six saves and Brandon Corlow was tremendous on the penalty kill as he ordinarily is and remember the bees on the penalty kill 85.6 percent entering tonight first in the league no other teams over 84 percent and they killed four tonight and two really difficult ones four on three is really difficult but so is five on three and they were able to shut both those downs. And Olmark made some really big saves there. Okay, so the big surprise tonight, I mean, the face-offs, 19.4% they won tonight, which is completely unheard of in an NHL game that a team would be that dominated in the face-off circle. And the Bruins entering tonight, third in the NHL in face-off percentage. The Stars are really good. They're number two in the league. But man, Bergeron won just, what, 30% tonight. That is really tough to do, where the Bees are under 20% on the night. You just don't see that very often in the NHL. So an off night when it comes to that, I'll just chalk that up to an off night. The other thing, the power play, where coming into tonight, 0 for their last 17. Tonight, they're 0 for 3. So they're now 0 for their last 20. They're down to seventh on the power play this season after being top three the majority of the season. So hopefully that turns around. Now, you did get the one good shot, as we mentioned, from Zaka, where he hit the pipe, but overall, the Bruins power play has not looked the same lately. So hopefully that can get going when they go to Nashville on Thursday night. Another cool thing I thought is just that they have sibling week or whatever it is where the siblings are traveling with the team. And it's a good time to be traveling with the team if you're a sibling of one of the players, because now you get to go to Nashville, which is pretty sweet. But I thought this is an important win for the Bruins to bounce back. And Dallas is a really good team. They're the best team in the Western Conference right now. So this is a really important win for the Bruins to try to get them going in the right direction again.
So earlier today, we had a chance to chat with Drew Hanlon from Pure Sweat Basketball. He's the CEO there. He works with Jason Tatum. He works with Joel Embiid, Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, Tyrese Halliburton. So we had a conversation about his work with Jason Tatum, his relationship with Jalen Brown, some of the work they did this offseason, and some of the work they did dating all the way back to Duke. I thought this was incredibly informative. I had a lot of fun chatting with Drew, so I hope you guys enjoy it. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the CEO of Pure Sweat Basketball. It's Drew Hanlon, of course, does a lot of work with Jason Tatum. Drew, thanks so much, man, for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for being patient with my schedule. Oh, no problem whatsoever. So, hey, let's start at the beginning with Jason Tatum. So, I know, obviously, you were working out Bradley Beal, and then you were working out David Lee. So, is it true that Tatum's mother reached out to you when he was still in middle school? Yeah, so he reached out and uh, or she reached out. At the time, I was like, I don't really individually work out with players that young. And uh, she was relentless. She kept, you know, calling and, uh, you know, eventually had Brad call me. Brad was like, hey, you got to take a chance on this kid. I'm telling you, he's, he's going to be really good. He's like a little brother to me. And, um, you know, I gave him a chance. I worked him out the first time, almost to the point where he passed out. Like he was literally had to like go out in the hallway, uh, <laughs> like throw up, you know, get a drink and came back on the court and kept working. And I'll never forget. I got a text message from his mom uh, afterwards. His, his aunt had brought him to the gym because uh, he wasn't old enough to drive. And um, afterwards, his mom texted me and said, uh, hey, you'll love this. But Jason said, you know, hey, we were going to have to carry him off the court before he was going to give up. And that's when I knew he had a special mentality. Um, and then from there, we just got to work and um, have been working together ever since. All right. Well, speaking of that work ethic, so he gets drafted by the Celtics. And I know that Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens had reached out to you and said, hey, they want you to work on like his three point shooting, sidestepping things along those lines. And you go back to Duke. He only shot thirty four point two percent from three. And this is at the collegiate level. His rookie season, he shoots over 43% from three-point territory. So what was that first summer like before he came into the NBA? Like, how many threes are you guys getting up a day? So this is the part of the story that a lot of people don't realize. We changed his shot before he went to Duke. And so we started the season, I think it was like 20, 22%, something like that. And so there is a game, NC State game. I went up there. I saw the NC State game. And after the NC State game, we got in the gym. We kind of changed his shot midseason. And from that point on, he shot 39% from three um, mm. at Duke. And so there was a lot of concerns. It was funny because, um, you know, at the time, once Philly had the number one pick, I was working out Joel. I was like, it's a no-brainer. I'm telling Philly, like, you guys have to draft this guy. If you guys put Jason and Joel together, you guys are going to win titles. And they're like, you know, oh, we really like him, but telling you guys, like, you have to pick Jason. He's the number one pick. He's the best player, uh, you know, from this draft class. Um, and they had concerns about his shooting. And so I pointed to that game and I said, look, go do the numbers. After that game, he shot, I think it was like 39% from three. If you include that game, I think it was like 37 after that game, 39. And, um, but then after that, I mean, we were shooting, we did this 250 make drill where he had to do 250 made threes to start the workout. And then after that, we would do a workout, which normally consists of another, you know, 250 makes. And he ended up basically making a thousand shots a day. Wow. Um, 
And the crazy thing about it was I used to shoot a thousand shots every morning, but it was like spot up catch and shoot. It, his was like 500 catch and shoot or one dribble pull-ups and then almost 500 of like game shots. So uh, he worked, you know, tirelessly, you know, on the three-pointer and then obviously got great results. His season. And then, you know, the second season, his numbers went down a little bit and, you know, I had a lot of angry fans that were like, what'd you do to break his shot? And they didn't realize <laughs> that his shot quality had just went down. You know, his rookie season, a lot of it was catch and shoot wide open kind of in rhythm shots. Whereas his second year his numbers weren't down that much. It was just that he was shooting a, a different shot profile. And so now you see him where, you know, obviously we always want to get to that magical 40 number. Um, but sometimes when you're shooting the, the side steps and the contested ones and the late shot clock ones, and you have the responsibility to shoot kind of uh, higher volume and, and lower quality ones, uh, you are going to see, you know, the percentages drop a little bit, which is why guys like Devin Booker, who's a, an elite shooter. I think Devin Booker's only shot over 38% one time in his career. Well, it's kind of crazy too. like thinking back to that draft that people were concerned about Jason Tatum shot when Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball ended up going <laughs> before him in the draft. Just looking back at that, obviously, as Celtics fans, we're really happy that he's here. So after the Celtics lose in the finals, we see the beginning of this season and it looks like not just Tatum, but the team in general, it looks like they were shot out of a cannon. Did you notice that like right when you guys started working out in the offseason that he was like incredibly motivated to bounce back? Yeah, I've publicly said it that, uh, you know, it was the first time I think in our relationship that I went a week without talking to Jason. Like, I mean, after the finals, it was, you know, we talked a little bit right after the finals. Um, and then after that, it was a week of, you know, I didn't hear from him, maybe even longer. It was almost closer to two weeks of just not hearing from him. I knew he needed a space. I didn't reach out to him. Then I got the road text, you know, a couple weeks later when he was finally ready to kind of get back to work. But um, no, he was relentless this summer. Um, it was, I did, he didn't want to feel that feeling ever again. You know, he was so close and then just not to win. Um, you know, he was like, man, I, I, I'm crave getting back and I, I crave feeling what it feels like to actually hold that trophy to actually win it all. And it was cool. It's just a, it was a cool mindset and a growth that I hadn't seen before in some of the young players I'd worked with. You know, I had worked with guys that have won championships. I've worked with guys that had been there before, but um, for a guy that like was coming up, I never got to see that firsthand, you know, a superstar that uh, fell just short of winning it all. And for him, even just seeing other guys in my gym, I mean, I had so many, you know, all-stars that I, that I either work with or that come to open gyms and stuff like that. He was like, man, nothing else matters. The only thing that matters is winning. Like, I don't care about MVP. I don't care about scoring titles. I don't care about all the accolades in the world. All I care about is winning a championship. Um, you know, to see him that locked in on it, uh, you know, we, we didn't play golf in LA. You know, he loves golf, but he was just too tired from all the work he was doing with, with Nick, Nick Sang was doing all of his lifting, his treatment. I was doing all his basketball workouts. Um, and really he was so tired after that, that he didn't have time for golf or anything like that. So, um, you know, for a guy that has it all and all the money you could want, um, you know, all the fame you could want for him to still say, yeah, I'm giving up another summer. I don't care. I'm not enjoying this until, you know, the, the, the job is finished and the job is to win a championship. It was really cool and really, really neat to see. Well, one of the things is you mentioned the strength training. So if you look at it this season, he's up to 8.7 free throws per game, which is six in the NBA. And that's up from 6.2 a year ago. So I know, obviously, he clearly got bigger in the offseason. He's obviously finishing better at the basket as well. But some of it's got to be craft, too. Like, I don't want you to give away trade secrets so people pick up on this. But it does look like he does that, like, Harden thing where he holds the ball out. He's drawn a lot of contact in that way. 
But was that like a big emphasis for you guys in the offseason for him to get to the free throw line more? That was the emphasis. I mean, if you look back at the finals, you know, if we look individually and say, what could he have done better? You know, the big thing was just playing through fouls, driving and getting downhill. Um, so that nights that your three pointer isn't falling, uh, you know, you still have the ability to contribute to the game. And if you think about it, you know, if you if you improve driving and finishing, then the three pointers become better looks because people can't just press up on you. Everyone knew he was going to get to his side steps in, in years past. And so they could just sit and time it out and then contest. And then obviously it was a make or miss because he's good enough to get it off. But we were like, those aren't high quality shots. Uh, finishing, uh, you know, if, if you get downhill and, and finish, now you have the ability to obviously, you know, add another layer to your game. Free throws. You know, if you want to get more free throws, you got to get downhill and be more physical playing through that contact. That'll get you easy points at the line, which also gets you good looks to get your shot feeling good. Playmaking. If you're standing out and, and floating around the three-point line, it's hard to create for others. If you're getting downhill and there's rotation breakdown, now you can create for others. So, you know, I think that like a lot of people reached out to me and said, oh man, you guys did a great job on Jason's playmaking this summer. And really it wasn't the playmaking that we worked on. It was just what you talked about, driving downhill and finishing. We worked on adding a floater. We worked on his touch around the rim, both away from the basket and towards the basket, extension finishes. Um, and then we really put a heavy emphasis on just playing through contact, getting downhill so that we don't really have to worry about if the refs do or don't call the fouls that are there. We can just hopefully, uh, you know, kind of read that scenario. And if they're calling a lot, then we can get to the free throw line by doing a couple strategies. And if they're not calling a lot, then we can still be able to stay on balance and still make plays, uh, which is what you've seen so far this season. And another thing I've noticed, because you mentioned that makes a lot of sense with the playmaking, just if he's getting downhill more, it's going to be better from that perspective. But the other thing I've noticed, and maybe I'm exaggerating it, but the off the ball movement to me has been much better this season. Like we don't really see a ton of superstars like set off the ball screens like on the ball. It makes a lot of sense, right? Because they're going to get the ball back. But Tatum is always setting screens off the ball, which I guess creates opportunities for other guys, but also himself. And then the other thing I've noticed, and he's done this a bit this year, is that Steph Curry thing where he throws the ball and he'll actually chase it and get it back. And a lot of that comes in the corner where he's shooting like over 47 percent from three point territory. But is that like film work that you guys do or is it physical stuff? Like how did he improve in that capacity? It's funny because I, I learn a lot from the other experiences I have with my other clients. And so if you look at, you know, the, the other MVP candidate that I have, Joel Embiid, what I've realized over the years is, you know, especially in the postseason, Joel has been able to get double and triple team because teams know what he's doing, what his spots are, et cetera. So, you know, even in playoff series, Joel will average 30 and 12, you know, against the Celtics a couple of years ago, in the, but then get swept. And you're going, man, what, what happened there? And then the next year you look and you say, you know, it's somebody, some team like Atlanta and you're going, how did Atlanta control Joel? Well, they didn't really control him, but eventually they limited the amount of impact that he could have with Jason. The big thing that I kept telling him during development is, Hey, we have to be aware that teams are, as you continue to reach this stardom, teams are going to try to, you know, basically squeeze the ball out of your hands during games. And you have to be more unpredictable so that they can't do that. So that you can still have that big impact. And so, uh, some of those things are setting screens and slipping screens that are unpredictable. Also, setting screens to get the mismatches you want so that you can see him like post up at the nail, uh, which you see a lot often this year because, you know, he does need to get to sometimes get to the mid range and mid post where he can just dominate and shoot over players because he's so good at that. Um, you know, other times you see him hit and chase because if he has the ball in his hands and he dribbles off the ball screen, well, that's, you know, you can easily blitz it because you know what's coming. You can time up the dribble. 
Whereas if you hit and then split off of it, you know, and come off of it, now the, the dribble handoff guy, he can either fake it and turn a corner or he can hand it off. So the blitz is a little bit later. It's a harder to trap. So, you know, a lot of it came from just my relationship with Joel and understanding that like my whole life around Joel and B's work is how do we figure out how to get not double teamed and triple teamed. And with Jason, I saw him getting to that level of stardom and said, Hey, we have to be aware of that. We can't have, you know, weaknesses out there where you can't impact the game because they're able to squeeze the ball out of your hands. And uh, that's why the unpredictability is there. And then also it's just Celtics off is really, really good. They enjoy playing together. They enjoy cutting and moving and spacing. Um, and so a lot of that is just a byproduct of, of really good offense and, and good teammates that, uh, you know, have bought into sharing the ball and, and playing as a unit. Well, and if you look at it too, like obviously the ball handling for Tatum has improved immensely. I mean, how many times this year has he left a guy in the dust with that like in and out lefty dribble he has and he'll spin back. But all in all, when you look at it, like it's very rare we see in the NBA that four that can completely like he's basically the primary ball handler right now, especially with Smart out of the lineup. But even with Smart in the lineup, he's the primary ball handler. Even like a guy like Kawhi Leonard, we've never really seen him like completely run an offense, right? We've seen him as a play finisher, but how big of a step is that to go from a guy when Tatum came into the league, he's a good shooter, he's a good scorer, to now completely being able to run the offense? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously tremendous growth on Jason. It's it's a big testament to like how hard he works, all the work he puts in, all the film he studies, et cetera. But, um, you know, that's who he was. You know, growing up, he was a point guard. And then he just got really tall, and then he became really good in the mid-post and mid-range, and then we expanded his game to the three-point line. Um, but I mean, he was a triple double in high school. It was funny because actually in high school, we had to push him and challenge him to be more aggressive as a scorer. You mm -hmm. know, there were, there were games where we'd be like, come on, you got to take over. And he's, I'm making the right play. I'm making the right play. And we're like, yeah, but sometimes the right play is just put the team on your back and carry them. Um, and then he got into that scorer's mentality where, like you said, in the draft, you know, a lot of people had concerns, uh, you know, was he a good enough shooter? Another one that they had a concern was, was he athletic enough, which I always laugh about because he put LeBron on a poster his rookie season. And the third <laughs> one was, you know, is he, is he a guy that's just going to be a scorer or is he going to be a guy that can actually win you games? And uh, obviously he's proven all three of those, uh, you know, kind of concerns wrong, but um, yeah, that's who he was in high school. He was a triple double machine and, um, you know, then he became a scorer because that's what he evolved into. And now he's just getting back to his roots of, uh, you know, making the right play, playing, winning basketball and doing everything that he can to dominate the, the game in multiple ways. All right. So I want to ask you about a couple of his teammates. So first, Robert Williams, I feel like after every game that Robert Williams plays in, Jason Tatum praises him after the game, talking about how much he likes playing with Rob. And obviously they don't have that element when Rob's not in there, right? That guy that can easily catch alley-oops. And it's very difficult to defend them when he's in the action with Jason Tatum. So does he talk to you about playing with Rob and how much of a luxury item that is for them? He loves Rob, man. I remember when they were doing like contract negotiations and stuff like that. He's like, man, we need him. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Get it done. Um, just being a, a defensive threat, uh, you know, a guy that can, you know, erase a lot of mistakes on their defensive end offensively gives them a, ro a lob threat, which also helps space out the floor. People don't realize that like when you're five out, you know, you can like the Celtics did early the season when they were five out, they were getting dribble penetration, kickouts, and they were obviously generating a very, very high, uh, highly effective offense, but it's hard to sustain just because, you know, teams can start switching and then it becomes a lot of ISO ball. 
when you have a guy like Rob out there who can roll and dive to the rim, now you're pulling in weak side defenders. Now you're getting, you know, X outs on the defensive end. You're getting miscommunication, et cetera. So, um, yeah, Jason loves him. His teammates love him. And he's just overall a good guy. Not only is he a good player, but um, he's a really good person. So uh, Jason loves him on the court, loves him off the court, and he knows how valuable he is to this team. And really, it's one of those things where when you look back at the Celtics last year, they make a great run. Um, but one of the big what ifs is what if Rob was healthy? You know what I mean? What if he was healthy yeah. um, instead of, you know, really kind of trying to just do everything he could to kind of get through the season, if he could actually get from the season, what it would look like. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully he's able to was saying that, you know, good health throughout the playoffs and, and give them a good push because they're, they're looking really good with him. All right, Drew. So like if this play happened like two years ago where inadvertently Tatum hit Jalen Brown in the face, he got a facial fracture like this would be a whole story. Oh, do they dislike each other? I mean, you know, like that was just like an incredibly dumb narrative. And these guys were so young, right, in their NBA careers when people are talking about did they need to break them up. But they had that moment last year after the Eastern Conference finals against Miami where they were yelling at each other like they told us that we needed to be broken up. So what's that relationship like between those two guys? A gr- amazing relationship. It's funny because I've I've obviously dealt with superstars that don't like other superstar teammates, and <laughs> you know, and, and have had to play the card of just like no comment, um, you know. But the big thing that Jason, I remember, I, I said this publicly a while back, but like um, Ramona Shelburne was asking me, she was like, "Hey, do they really not like each other?" I was like, "No, they actually love each other." I go, "In fact, I go, I was sitting on Jason's couch one time, and we we're sitting there talking, and like, do you think it can work?" Because that's the big question with superstars. It's not that they don't like each other. Sometimes just don't think it can work. Like we can't win together. And uh, he's like, I mean, I don't even know who I would trade him for. He's like, like straight up, like take away the whole, like, <laughs> you know, take away the whole, you know, you're going to say yes to some of these superstars and they'd be like, yeah, he would say yes to, you know, superstar, uh, you know, for me too. But you're like, how many players are better two way players than, than him? And we started going down the list and we're like, man, there's, there's not many players in the NBA. This is even, this is two years ago. You know, like there's not many players we trade straight up because we know how good Jalen can be both ends of the floor to get guys that can switch everything on defense and both actually buy into defense offensively, not only are talented and can score efficiently, but also can do it unselfishly. You know, you're just going, I mean, there's not many players that you would just straight up trade, like forget the whole, you know, oh man, this player plus a bunch of picks and play just straight up, you know, they're just such a good match. And, uh, you know, for JB going four out of six Eastern Conference finals, for Jason three out of five, for them to go to a finals together, for them to, you know, they were up three, two against LeBron. And then LeBron went LeBron, you know, God mode. Um, and that was when they were a little bit younger, but it's just like for a pairing, you couldn't ask for anything better. And then for all the complimentary players they put around them, you know, hardworking guys, guys that buy into defense, the guys that share the ball, they're just very well built. Um, to to not just win now, but also win later. Okay, so yeah, that's unbelievable too that he said, I don't know who else I would trade him for. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's a two-way wing. It's like the most important commodity in the NBA and the Celtics have two of the best guys doing it in the NBA. So the story goes with Joe Mazzulla that when Brad Stevens was the coach, obviously he was the only carryover from Brad's staff on to Ime's staff that Jason Tatum actually went to Ime and said that you should keep Joe Missoula on the staff, or at least he encouraged him to keep Missoula on the staff. Now Missoula takes over as the head coach. So how much does Tatum like Missoula, and what have you made of Missoula's first year as the head coach here with the C's? I mean, Jason obviously loves him. Um, he's done a great job. I think the big thing that he did was he put his own spin on things, but he didn't try to change everything that was working. He kept the things that were working. 
you know, him being on staff, he allowed, it allowed him to really see kind of, okay, we really like this. We really like that. But then also there was the other side of him that was like, I want to put my own uh, fingerprints on this team's success. You know, you see them a little bit more analytically driven on offense, shooting a lot more threes, hunting threes more in a good way. Um, so I, I think that the best thing that he did was he didn't disrupt flow that they had already built that got them to the finals, uh, while also still trying to improve so that they could be a better version of that team, um, that was there last year, which I think is what you see. You know, I think you see a more complete, a more well-groomed, uh, well-oiled machine this year than you did last year. And, um, you know, you have to stay healthy. You have to get hot at the right time. But I think that if you're a Celtics fan, you really like, uh, you know, where the team's at and where the team's headed. All right, Drew. So you mentioned you worked out Joel Embiid or you work out Joel Embiid. You work out a lot of other guys, Tyrese Halliburton and Bradley Beal. So I'm interested. I know that Beal and Tatum played a couple of years ago in that play in tournament. And obviously the regular season's different. But what's it going to be like for you if we I mean, because now the stakes are super high for Philly and the Celtics, two of the favorites to win the NBA championship. What's that like for you who you're close with Embiid, you're close with Tatum. But if they play in a potential playoff series, do you just like want them both to go for 40? Because one of your guys is going to be really happy. And one of the guys is going to be heartbroken after that series. It's the worst part of my job every year because it happens every year because I work with, you know, I work with Tyler Hero in Miami. I work with Joel in Philly. I work with Jason in Boston, Brad in D.C., you know, R.J. Barrett in New York. I mean, literally Tyrese Halliburton in Indy. So the whole Eastern Conference are my guys um, and they're all good players. You know, sometimes if you have a star on one team and like a role player on the other team. You're like, all right, I hope the star wins because like, you know, they're, they're the one that's going to end up like carrying the team. But uh, yeah, during the postseason, I'm basically preparing both guys. Uh, I'm doing all their video edits. I'm making all their adjustments. It's a weird scenario to be in. Um, you know, and I always get the text messages, you know, no, you got to pick a side. Like, no, we're not doing this whole you cheer for both of us thing. Obviously, I end up cheering for both of them. But um, it is almost like a numb feeling. It's, it's a <laughs> I don't wish it upon any basketball fan because as a basketball lover growing up, <laughs> Like my, my birthday present to game was one game to every uh, NBA season. That was my birthday present when I was younger. And my, my Christmas present was the flight to that game because I was a St. Louis kid. So then I would get the flight to whatever game that I picked. That was how much I loved basketball growing up. Now I'm at NBA games and, you know, I'm there for work. But if I'm, if I'm watching two guys compete and it's not the regular season, regular season, I'm hoping the guys combine for 100. I'm hoping both of them go for 50. But during the playoffs, you can't, you can't feel the highs. All you do is feel the lows. It's like one of those things where like, I've heard this before, but as a parent, you're only as happy as your saddest kid. And it's like, that's how I am almost as a, as a skills coach where you're almost like, you're only as happy as your saddest client. So after the game, one guy is celebrating and cheering and you want to be out there and, you know, hugging them and saying good job to them and congratulating. But the other part of you is like, I got to go put my arm around the other guy that loses. So yeah, it's a, it's a shitty situation for me. And it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's not fun. You know, it's not fun at all. Yeah. And what's your relationship like during the regular season? Of course, because during the offseason, you're putting in all this work. You mentioned the film and stuff. So will Jason like text you be like, hey, can you look at this third quarter? Can you look at me doing a certain thing? Is that kind of how it goes? And I know you go out to see him a lot, too. But is that kind of how it works during the regular season? During the regular season, it, it depends for each guy. I mean, some guys I do film for after every game, before every game, um, some guys I'm texting, like there's times where we've made adjustments at halftime, you know, like sending text messages to whether it's them, oh, wow. if they check their phone or it's, or it's, you text one of the coaches that's close with them. Um, so it just depends. It's amazing how fully kind of, um, in tune these guys are with everything that's going on, 
Um, but yeah, fans would be shocked. There's been times where I've been at games and I'll get text messages from players during live play or something like that. And they're like, wait, wh- wh- who, who was that? And I'm like, yeah, they're back in the locker room. They just came out, you know, not saying Jason in particular, I'm saying just in general players, but, um, there's no bad time to make a good adjustment. And so, um, we're constantly trying to find ways to get them better. And, uh, you know, there's times where, you know, you guys have seen where Jason, we've had to completely, you know, tweak his shot during a season because the, the shot isn't feeling good, whether his elbow reverts back too high or, um, you know, it comes too far in or something like that. Or there's other times where, um, you know, we'll see a certain uh, scheme or coverage slow him down. Hey, what should we do in this scenario? And so it usually starts with talking about it. Then it goes to film and then it goes to getting in the gym and actually working on it. Uh, but there's, you know, a, a dozen of those moments where we're tweaking stuff throughout the season um, just because, you know, stuff happens. Well, as a Celtics fan, I got to say this. I really appreciate that, that you're helping him during the game. So it's <laughs> great to hear. So just before I let you go, I wanted to know about like the Embiid and Tatum battles, like when those guys are working out together. Are those crazy? Insane. It, the, one of the most fun parts of my job is over the summer, seeing these guys go at each other with no script, no playbook, no help, just like straight mano y mano some of the best players in the world. I say it all the time. I, my open gym runs are more exciting than any NBA game. Like I would way rather be at one of my runs than an NBA finals game. As far as just the straight pureness of basketball and the skill level and the talent showing up uh, to hear these guys jaw back and forth and then to go at each other. Um, it, it's so fun to watch and just, and it's also, there's a, a certain level of respect there. You know, all my guys respect each other so much um, just because they, they put in the work. You notice all my guys are like the skilled players. They've all really, you know, bought into the skill level and they're all high level scores and um, stuff like that. So it's fun. Just, you know, we're all in group checks during the year. We're all talking, you know, trash about, uh, you know, certain things and aspects and arguing basketball, just like the, the casual basketball fan would. Um, and then on game days, you know, we're, I'm always putting them in group text and, and talking shit to kind of get it going before the, <laughs> before the game happens. Um, but yeah, those two are, are two guys that are just so talented. Um, and they're really redefining what like taller players can do. You know, there's a, there's a whole group of guys, guys like Dirk Nowinski and, and Kevin Durant back in the day, but now guys like Joel Embiid, you know, doing crossovers and handling and hezzy pull-ups at seven foot two, 285, just different. You know, like you talked about with Jason being able to, uh, be as versatile as he is playmaker at 610, you know what I mean? And looks like a guard. Like no one would really say he's a big guy. He's like a 610 guard. Um, it's fun to be, you know, to, to be a little fly on the wall and, and a little, uh, you know, kind of uh, part of the process of both of those guys. You going to text him any advice for the three point contest, like after his first round or something? None at all. I got, <laughs> I got, I got three guys in it. I got Tyrese in it, Tyler in it and Jason. In it. So I got, three ace chance of winning uh, the three point shootout, which means absolutely nothing in my world. But, uh, you know, all I hope is that they all get rest. Maybe you should hop in. Didn't you shoot like 50% or something? Your final year at Belmont? I, I would, I would win the three point contest. I really am <laughs> confident that I would win the three point contest. All right. That is Drew Hanlon, CEO of pure sweat basketball, obviously does great work with Jason Tatum. And as I say, again, from every Celtics fan, thank you so much for all the work you do with Jason Tatum. Drew, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. a lot of cool stuff. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Had a lot of fun there chatting with Drew Hanlon. I thought he had a lot of good stories. He says he'd win the three-point contest. Maybe he would. I mean, this guy shot 50% his final year at Belmont. I thought that stuff was fascinating, though, about Duke, how Jason Tatum's three-point percentage went way up in the second half of the season, and teams didn't really look into that as much as Drew Hanlon was trying to tell teams. And I am glad that, of course, Tatum didn't go to the Philadelphia 76ers. Can you imagine that if it was Jason Tatum and Joel Embiid for all those years? But that was a lot of fun. And the thing that impressed me most about this is just Tatum's work ethic. I mean, his mother's calling this guy when he's still in middle school. And then last year, after they lose in the NBA Finals, all he wants to do after he deals with the loss internally, get back out there and work harder. And we've seen the results. And like we've been saying all year, from my perspective, the big thing is get to the free throw line more. And Hanlon said that. That was our number one thing in the offseason. All right, by the way, remember, you can email us at offthepike at gmail.com. That's offthepike at gmail.com. Really easy to remember that. And also, you can leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. So we got a couple of those. So who's up first? Hey, Brian. Just uh, watch the Celtics beat our good Grizzlies team, of course, still down. Marcus and Jalen and Malcolm Brogdon. And was texting a friend about the Celtics and just listing off, you know, combinations of their players and What's really incredible about this team, and I think my favorite thing about this team, is how many guys that we can play who just don't suck. I mean, obviously, Jalen, Jason, uh, I think their third best player is Rob when he's healthy, what he does on defensive end. Al, Marcus, D. White, Brogdon, Grant, uh, Muscala, uh, Peyton Pritchard, Hauser, Cornette, and even you think about the fact that Gallo is on this team and not playing that's so many guys who, you know, you get down to the end with Cornette and Hauser, you worry about those guys in a playoff series, but Hauser's been really, really good lately, and Cornette has yet to really disappoint us in, in his role. So you think about the potential for this team when you look at all of the talent they have. Um, and, I'm man, I'm just really excited. Uh, it feels good on Super Bowl Sunday when the Pats are playing uh, to be excited about, uh, and obviously, two of our teams here in Boston. But thanks so much for the show. Love it as always. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. I appreciate the kind words. And it's a good point. I mean, we saw, especially tonight in this game against the Bucks, how deep this Celtics team is, where the starting lineup is one you would never have imagined. And Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon, without Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, almost carry you to a victory against the team that you're competing with for the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. I mean, you just take a team like, for example, the Dallas Mavericks, and you look at, to your point, some of the guys they're playing tonight. They played JaVale McGee. I guess he barely played, but still, they played JaVale McGee. They played Frankie Smokes. They played Theo Pinson 19 minutes. So the thing about Dallas is they had to sort of gut their depth to bring in a guy like Kyrie Irving. But it is something where the Celtics can stay afloat here without the defensive player of the year, Jason Tatum, 
Jalen Brown, Al Horford, the depth that they've created, it is really, really impressive. And they don't have a lot of liabilities defensively. Like, yeah, you can take advantage of Mescal a little bit, but in a big playoff game, he's not going to be on the court in the fourth quarter. Sure, you can take advantage of Hauser a little bit, but that's it. Other than that, you don't have liabilities from a defensive perspective. So it's a really good point. I mean, if you look through the contenders in the NBA, nobody right now is as deep as the Celtics. All right, who's up next? Hey there, Brian. It's Tim uh, from Massachusetts originally, but but now down in New York City. Uh, really love the show. Thanks for doing a fantastic job juggling all these sports and all these teams. Uh, a question for you about Joe Missoula. Now, I, I I don't get to watch the, the the regular season quite as much as I'd like, but but one thing that I always thought Brad Stevens as a coach was strong with was kind of his uh, late game management, some of those rotations, and especially the out of timeout plays. And I'm just wondering, you know, Joe being so young and being a first year head coach, I'm wondering if you've seen anything either positive or, or concerning that just kind of gives you pause for the playoffs, perhaps, you know, on, on some of his out of timeout plays. And I mean, I think it's been well documented about how he manages or perhaps doesn't manage the, the timeout thing. But, but I'm just curious if you're seeing anything positive, negative, or otherwise about kind of some of that more on the margin stuff from Joe and, and, and kind of how that uh, makes you think he might do in, in the playoff run. Thanks a bunch, Brian. Yeah, it's a fair question. And the number one thing I said, and you alluded to it, is the timeouts. That's my number one concern about Missoula. And he admitted tonight that he made a mistake. He should have called a timeout late in that game, especially when they were going nowhere offensively at the end of overtime there. You have to call a timeout when it comes to that. So that'd be my one concern is his timeout usage. And I know like his whole idea is ordinarily wants the guys to play through it. But I think from Joe Missoula's perspective, he's a first year head coach. He has to start to learn how to use his timeouts, right? So like the players don't need this lesson right now. These are veteran players. They need your help at times, right? So I think Joe Mazzulla, it would help him if he actually used his timeouts more during the regular season so he's ready for the postseason, so to speak, rather than the players being ready for the postseason. These guys have been to the NBA Finals for the most part with like the exception of Malcolm Brogdon, but the majority of this team was here last year. So that'd be the one thing that I would critique with Joe Mazzulla. The minutes bother me a little bit, just how many minutes guys are playing. Now, right now, you can't avoid it because all these guys are out. But just with Tatum, I feel like those minutes are getting a little bit high. But in terms of his rotations, I don't have an issue with it. I trust that he's going to have the right players out there at the end of games. And the one thing is he may have to make some tough decisions. Like you may go into a game in the postseason where Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, those are your locks. Those guys are on the court in the closing lineup every time. But there may be a game where you have Derek White out there with Robert Williams, and maybe you want to close big with Al Horford. Or maybe you just want another guy bigger sized like Grant Williams out there and Marcus Smart's not on the court. Like those conversations could be more difficult in the postseason when it's a guy like Marcus. Now, if it's a guy like Al and he's not in the closing lineup, this is a veteran. He's just trying to win a championship. He's over himself at this particular point in time. That's not going to be difficult. But those closing lineups, like you got a lot of guys that have an argument that they should be on the court. That could be difficult in the postseason. I trust he'll make the right decisions in terms of how to or who to play. But I do wonder how those conversations go after the game when, say, the hypothetical is Marcus Smart's not on the court at the end of a game. Heck, Brogdon's a very prideful guy. He's an exceptional player who's been like a fringy all-star candidate at times. If he's really rolling and he's not in the game at the end and say it's Derek White, would he have an issue? So I do think those are questions that 
we'll get to when we get into the postseason. But the good news is if you win those games and you make the right decision, it won't be as big of a problem because the guy won't have an argument to make, right? All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. Dave, you're a New England transplant out of North Carolina. Hey, I love the show. You you are just crushing it from all angles. So uh, a couple of Super Bowl reflections relative to our beloved Patriots. I had no dog in the fight. As a matter of fact, my pre-Super Bowl thought was at least one team I can't stand is going to lose this thing. But watching the game, I could not help but contrast the NFL's best, particularly the offenses with our beloved Patriots, both Chiefs and Eagles. And you talk about a dizzying array of multiple sets, sophisticated motion, personnel packages, and they execute to perfection. And then there's the RPOs. I mean, they just crushed the RPOs, both offenses, something you've been emphasizing since last year's training camp. So, And then when the Eagles are going for it on fourth down, no hesitation on the coaching staff. The offense lines up quickly, confidently, and they knock it out. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, man, that sure beats uh, Max screaming at Coach Matty P to get the play in. Finally, uh, there are two coaching staffs that they built the offenses that, that maximize the talent on the field, not the talent of the coaches, unlike what we did this last year. And, and then again, there's the talent that we do not have that's out on the field that I saw both of them. So it was clear that the gap between the Patriots and the league's best is significant. My, my analogy from my work career is like trying to bring a 1960s carrier out of mothballs, aircraft carrier out of mothballs, praying it was seaworthy, <laughs> and then trying to overhaul it and equip it to be a 21st century <laughs> fighting machine. So at best, a multi-year and expensive challenge. Uh, that's it. Kind of depressing. Uh, I'm just hoping Bill, maybe uh, praying Bill came to a similar, similar conclusion and makes some really bold changes and he acquires the talent we need to compete at the Chiefs and Eagles level. That's it, Brian. Keep up the great work. Take care. All right. So a couple of things there. And by the way, thank you for the kind words. So first of all, the fourth down stuff that you mentioned, completely with you. The Eagles, they create a lot of advantages by going for it on fourth down. The Patriots went for it the fewest and they were very inefficient when they went for it on first down. That's something that I wish that Bill would change. He hasn't been nearly aggressive enough over the past couple of years. In terms of the RPO game, I do truly believe that that's going to be an element to the offense again. I talked about the fact previously that Bill O'Brien, that's an RPO-heavy scheme at Alabama with Bryce Young and even prior to Bryce Young. You go back to Mac Jones. We referenced this number a lot. 20% of his passing attempts came out of RPOs at Alabama, and he was the most efficient RPO passing quarterback at the collegiate level his final season there when, of course, Alabama won the national championship. So with Bill O'Brien, I do feel like you're going to have a system that actually does cater to Mac Jones' strengths. To your point, I mean, look what the Eagles do. They do everything that enhances Jalen Hurts as a player. The Chiefs do the same thing with Pat Mahomes. As great as Pat Mahomes is, think about what they did twice in the red zone. They schemed something up where you or I could have thrown that touchdown pass, right? They're scheming guys wide open, which makes me kind of... Surprise, like, why did Arizona just hire the Eagles defensive coordinator? Their personnel is great. That's why they had all those sacks. They had zero sacks in the Super Bowl, right? So when you get back to it, just in terms of the scheme makes sense for the players, right? And I hope that that's the case. And I believe that will be the case with Bill O'Brien coming in, especially considering they both have experience, they being Mac and Bill O'Brien at Alabama. Now, in terms of sort of the other element to this is I do wonder, will Bill can sort of finish what he started, right? Where he acknowledged, yep, I fucked up the offensive coordinator position. No doubt about it. I screwed that thing up. So he fixed that. He got Bill O'Brien, right? 
So will he fix the weapons? Will he get Mac? Because think about this. Jalen Hurts, it's not a coincidence that he has A.J. Brown and he has his best season. I know he's third year into the NFL, but think about some of the plays those guys made in the game. Devontae Smith. And how about the play that A.J. Brown made all the way down the field? Devontae Smith was tremendous in that game, right? Why wouldn't you do everything you possibly could to help out your quarterback? I just hope the Patriots do the same thing with Mac Jones because it was crystal clear. The schemes that those two teams have, the weapons those two teams have, way better than where the Patriots are at as well. And I'm not diminishing that the Patriots need a lot of help on the offensive line. Like tackle is going to be a huge emphasis for this team, not just in the draft, but in free agency as well. But my number one priority from an offensive perspective, get him a damn weapon. Okay, even if you look at Joe Burrow, right? Like they fixed the line this year for the most part, and then they had all those injuries in the postseason. Two years ago, they had the choice between Panay Sewell, who was an outstanding tackle, or Jamar Chase. They went with the difference maker from the receiver position, and that got the Bengals all the way to the Super Bowl that year. That was part of the reason they went there, okay? So to me, this is a weapons league now. You need to address that in the offseason as well. And I would do it on the trade market. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll be back in a couple of days.